Well, last week on Easter Sunday, we considered the question, did the resurrection of Jesus actually happen? And if so, what difference does it make? And I suggested that as hard as it may be to believe, the bodily resurrection of Jesus offers more explanatory power when it comes to three claims. Now, we can debate the significance of those claims, but we cannot merely ignore them because they are what scholars call historically secure. And those three claims are that the tomb was empty, the risen Jesus was seen, and the disciples were changed. And if the resurrection really happened, well, that changes everything about the world we thought we knew. But today I'd like to take a different approach. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then that means that he's still alive, and therefore we can meet him now. And that is precisely what billions of people from the first century down to the 21st century have claimed. They say that they do not merely know things about Jesus, but they've actually experienced him for themselves. They've experienced his truth, his power, his grace, and his love, and it has forever changed their lives. And that is why people rarely will say uh, that Christianity is just a religion. It's not merely a religion. No, Christianity at its heart is a relationship with the living Jesus. Now, no one would say that about any other teacher or thinker or founder of a religious movement. Someone might say, well, I follow the teaching of Karl Marx, or I follow the teaching of the Buddha. They might even call themselves a Marxist or a Buddhist. But no one today would ever say, well, I personally know Karl Marx, or I know the Buddha. But there are countless people who would say, I know Jesus. In fact, I spoke with him this morning. And that is why people will say that you cannot argue someone else into the Christian faith. No, Christianity can't be argued into. It has to be experienced for oneself. And even Jesus affirmed that. When people had questions about him and were ex interested in exploring his claims, he would say, come and see. Come and see. Follow me. Look at me. Look at what I do. Look at how I live. Come and check me out for yourself. So there's a a deeply experiential aspect to the Christian life. And for that reason, today I'd like us to take a close look at a passage in John chapter 21 where the risen Jesus makes himself known to the disciple Peter. Now, this is one of a few of the resurrection appearances of Jesus that were confined to a set 40-day period between his resurrection and his ascension. Jesus appeared to Peter in bodily form, and that was unique. That's not going to be our experience, and yet there are important parallels that we can draw to our own. So as we look at this passage, I'd like us to consider three things. Let's consider the question that Jesus asks, the commission that Jesus gives, and the concern that Jesus addresses. The question Jesus asks, the commission that Jesus gives, and the concern that Jesus addresses. So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to John chapter 21. You'll find the passage beginning on page 907 in the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading verses 15 through 25. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Although the word is never actually used in this passage, this episode provides us with a poignant picture of what forgiveness entails. The apostle Peter was all bravado. He boasted that even if all those other disciples let Jesus down, he wasn't like those losers. He never would. No, he was willing to put everything on the line for Jesus. He would follow Jesus to prison. He would follow Jesus even to death. And Peter does dare to follow Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest as Jesus is questioned by the religious authorities. But then we watch as Peter proceeds to deny ever knowing Jesus without even seeming to realize what he's doing. Not once, not twice, but three times. And then the cock crows. And it all happened as Peter was warming himself outside beside a charcoal fire. Now, the Gospels tell us that the resurrected Jesus appeared to Peter on more than one occasion. But in all those other prior occurrences, Jesus never brings up Peter's past failure. He chooses to do so here. Why? Why here? Why now? Well, we don't know, but here's a good guess. Look at where Peter is. He's back on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, back where it all began, back where he first met Jesus, back where Jesus called him to follow him and to become a fisher of men. And so Jesus deliberately chooses to confront Peter, not in Jerusalem, the scene of his failure, but rather back in Galilee, where Peter would have had fonder memories of when Jesus first enlisted him. 
And so it seems quite clear to me that from the outset, Jesus is signaling that he's not cutting Peter off, but rather he's calling him back to himself. As Andrew Smith mentioned at the introduction to our prayer of confession, Jesus pursues us not in order to condemn us. No, he pursues us in order to forgive us and to restore us. Because you see, Peter's not the only one. Peter's not the only one who has denied Jesus. We've all denied Jesus. Through our words, through our actions, through our silence, perhaps through some secret sin. Has there ever been a time when you didn't want to be associated with Jesus because of what he stands for, because of what he represents? Or have you ever worried that if you identified yourself too closely with Jesus, it would cost you social acceptance or career advancement? Perhaps it might cost you a relationship. Or have you ever thought that the price of following Jesus was a price too great for you to pay? because it didn't line up with your pre-existing ideas about how things should be? Or have you ever remained silent when you should have stood up? Or have you done something that you promised you never would or that you said you would never do again? You see, Peter's not the only one. And sometimes we may know that we are forgiven in theory, but We need to be assured of that forgiveness. We need to experience it for ourselves in practice. Our memory and our imagination might be filled with old wounds and old hurts that don't easily go away. But as he so often does, Jesus goes directly, directly to the source of pain, not in order to hurt, but in order to heal. And therefore, if you realize that your relationship with God, or really your relationship with anybody in your life, has gone off track, well, then Peter shows us what we need to do. Ask yourself, where did things first begin to veer off course? And then retrace your steps. Go back to the beginning and start again, knowing that Jesus is ready to meet you there. And see, that brings me to the question that Jesus asks The beach along the Sea of Galilee becomes the scene of one of the most moving exchanges in the whole Bible. Now, prior to the moment that I just read in John 21, Jesus deliberately prepares what? A charcoal fire. Jesus prepares a charcoal fire in order to cook breakfast. And so just think about this. As Peter stands there in the heat of the fire and as the smell of that charcoal enters his nose and he sees Jesus standing in front of him, there's no doubt that he would have remembered his worst failure and wondered what Jesus was about to say to him. And there in the early early morning air with the smell of charcoal, In his nostrils, Jesus asked Peter three questions, one for each of his previous denials. Now, at first, Peter didn't understand why Jesus kept asking him the same question. It hurt him. It grieved him that Peter didn't receive his answer. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He didn't accept it. But then later, Peter realized why Jesus was doing this. Peter asked, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? For each of his previous 
denials so that he can now reaffirm his love for Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. You see, the reason why Jesus asked the question three times is not for him. No, this is for Peter. This is all for Peter. And the first time that Jesus poses the question, he asked Peter, do you love me more than these? Presumably referring to the other disciples. Do you love me more than the other disciples? Now, why would Jesus ask that? But Peter's finally starting to get it, right? Because before his denial, Peter made a habit of elevating himself above everybody else. He thought that he was better than all the disciples, but now he's not so cocky. He affirms that he does, in fact, love Jesus, but his love is not based on his own self-confidence. No, rather, his love is based on the sureness of Jesus' knowledge of him. And so the third time that Peter responds to that question, do you love me, he says, yes, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So he's not putting on a show of false humility. He's not saying, well, I guess I don't really love you, Jesus. I mean, look at what I did. Nor is he presuming to know how the other disciples love Jesus or to what degree. All that matters is that Jesus knew in advance that Peter was going to deny him, and Jesus knows now that Peter does, in fact, love him, despite everything that has happened in the past. But what I want you to notice here is that Jesus doesn't ask, Peter, tell me, since that fateful night, how often have you prayed? How many tears have you shed? How sorry do you feel? But rather, do you love me? And that shows us something critically important about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not something that we can earn. We don't earn Jesus' forgiveness through our zeal or through our sincerity or because we're contrite enough or sorry enough or because we've shed enough tears. What would ever be enough? It reminds me of a great line from a hymn I love, Rock of Ages. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. There's not enough zeal, sincerity, or tears that could ever make up for all the things that we've done, but the cross is enough. And that's the point. We don't add or contribute anything to what Jesus has done for us. We simply receive his grace through what he's accomplished through his cross. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And therefore, all that matters is our response to Jesus' question, do you love me? And a close corollary, corollary to that could be, and will you let me love you? Will you let me love you? You see, this encounter provides us with a window into the gospel. This is how God moves in our lives. The way in which God ordinarily works is not through power or strength, but through weakness and failure in order to showcase his grace. The most important question is not, do you have great vision or strategy or gifts or plans, but do you love Jesus? Because the ultimate task that Jesus gives us is to love. And if we don't really love Jesus, then we won't be able to love other people. It's far better, therefore, to be a forgiven sinner who loves Jesus much than to be a self-righteous person who doesn't think you need any forgiveness. 
But perhaps more astounding than the question Jesus asks is the commission that Jesus gives Peter. My first job out of college was at an investment firm here in New York City. I took my Series 7. I was licensed to buy and sell securities, but it wasn't my primary responsibility. I didn't actually do it all that often because I was an analyst. So I spent most of my time working on Excel spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations, but one day, everybody else on my team had stepped away. I was the only one on the desk, and a client called in a tizzy, anxious to get a trade done. And so he was in a hurry. He was in a rush, and I was nervous. Now, looking back on it, I think, I still think, he wanted me to buy derivatives. He wanted me to buy derivatives based on this one stock in which he had a large stake. And so I bought the derivatives. And then when I confirmed the order, he said, no, I didn't want to buy them. I wanted to sell them. I wanted to sell, sell. <laughs> and I thought in that moment, oh, no, I just, lost, I just lost my job. It's over. I've only just begun, and now it's over. But my boss came back to the desk not long after that, and he wasn't phased at all. And he said, don't worry. We can reverse the trade, and whatever the loss, no matter how great, I'll take it out of my commission. It's not going to affect you at all. Don't worry. And then he got on the phone, and he talked the client down, and he said, we'll reverse the trade. And, and then he trusted me enough to be the one who put in the order. Despite everything that I'd done, he trusted me enough to put in the order to reverse the trade. And so I was about to do so when the client says, wait, stop. The stock had moved in the exact opposite direction of what he thought was going to happen. And so as it turns out, I made him a lot of money that day. <laughs> so if you would like me to become your stockbroker, your derivatives trader, you can speak to me after the service. I like to think of myself as a finance minister. <laughs> well, coming back to our text, it would be one thing, wouldn't it, if Jesus said to Peter, it's okay, I forgive you for what you've done. You denied me in my greatest hour of need. And therefore, I can't trust you with anything. Not anything important. I forgive you, but look at what you did. Maybe I'll let you wash the dishes. But no, that's not what Jesus does. He trusts Peter enough to give him a job. And not just any job, the most important job there is. He entrusts Peter with his very own mission. So for each of Jesus' three questions, do you love me, he charges Peter three times, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Now, there's nothing grandiose here about what Jesus is asking of Peter or us by extension. See, whether or not we are religious professionals who are called to preach and teach or, or whether we're simply called to share the message of the gospel, to counsel our friends from the standpoint of the scriptures, it's all the same. Jesus doesn't tell us, go out there and win the world to my cause. No, he says, go out there and feed my lambs. That's the charge that he gives all of us. Go out there and take good care of my people. Feed them. Nourish them. Nourish them with good, solid teaching rather than junk. You know, if you offer kids the choice between a healthy snack or junk food, if you offer them the choice between a bowl of carrots versus a bowl of candy, <laughs> they're going to choose the junk food every time. I know this from experience. 
And in a similar way, that is how all of us human beings are spiritually. We naturally gravitate towards the junk. But if we want to take good care of God's people, we need to provide them with good, solid teaching, which means that we need to present people with the truth and the love of Jesus. And sometimes that means that we need to tell people what they don't want to hear. And sometimes that means that we need to tell people what they've, waiting, they've been waiting all of their lives to hear. We present both the truth and the love of Jesus. But let me add one thing. Do you realize, do you realize that we never would have known about Peter's greatest failure unless he voluntarily chose, it, chose to share it with us? No one else was there that night. No one else had to know. And how would you like it if your greatest failure, personally and spiritually, had been written down, not just in one gospel, but in all of them, for billions of people to read about? That's what Peter is famous for. That's what he's known for. Uh, yep, he was the one that denied Jesus. Not once, but three times. And yet, despite the embarrassment, Peter shares his worst failure. And aren't you glad that he did? Because we can all relate to Peter. We've all done or said things or failed to do or say things that we can't change, we can't take back, we can't undo. But Peter shows us not only how Jesus can forgive us, but how he can restore us. And you see, if Jesus gives Peter a leading role in his church, then there's hope for all of us. He can give anyone a role within his kingdom, and that includes you. And so we've considered Jesus, the, the question that Jesus asks and the commission that Jesus gives, but now I'd like us to turn to the concern that Jesus addresses. See, Jesus assumes that if you're going to join him in his ministry, well, then that means you're going to join him in his suffering. And so he goes on to warn Peter. He says, when you were young, you dressed yourself, you walked wherever you wanted to go, but when you are old, you are going to stretch out your hands. Someone else is going to dress you, and someone else is going to take you where you do not want to go. And the gospel writer John shows us that this was the way in which Jesus showed the manner in which Peter would die in order to bring glory to God. Now, tradition has it that Peter was crucified in Rome, but Peter considered himself so unworthy of Jesus, that he could not be crucified in the same manner. And so he asked, he asked if he could be crucified upside down. But no sooner has Peter been beautifully reinstated and told to follow Jesus yet again, when he looks over his shoulder and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved, who I take to be John, the writer of this gospel, following behind them. And Peter asked Jesus, well, hey, Jesus, what about that guy? What's going to happen to him? Now, some think this is a natural question to ask. Jesus has just informed Peter that he's going to glorify God by dying as a martyr. And after everything that Peter and John have been through, it's only natural that Peter would ask, well, what about John? Will he experience the same fate? But more than a few people detect a hint of competition here. And so Jesus responds by saying, well, look, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? In other words, that should be no concern of yours. I grew up in a family with six kids. 
there was a lot of sibling rivalry, a lot of competition. We were constantly sticking our nose in one another's business. But my dad came up with some great expressions for how he handled all of us. And whenever we were getting a little nosy or competitive with one another, he would say, don't worry about your brother. Don't worry about your sister. You pull your own little red wagon. You pull your own little red wagon. I heard that a lot as a kid. And effectively, that's what Jesus is saying to Peter. Don't worry about John. You have your own call. You just pull your own little red wagon. But here we have two apostles. Both have been called to follow Jesus. Both have been given different callings. One's called to take good care of God's people, and he's going to glorify God in the way in which he dies. The other one has been called to bear witness to Jesus by writing a gospel, and he's going to glorify God through what he writes. Both callings are necessary and vital. One is not more important or better than the other, but as so often happens, rather than embracing the differences between our callings as a good thing, Peter falls into the trap of comparing himself to John. And it is especially sad when Christians start playing the comparison game, whether out of curiosity or anxiety or just plain old envy. We look over our shoulder and we start to think, well, maybe God has something different or better in store for someone else. And we wonder, well, maybe God has made some kind of casting mistake here. And we think that if we could only swap roles, well, then we could do their job better and maybe things would go better for us. But the thing that we need to remember is that God doesn't make casting mistakes. God doesn't make casting mistakes. He's got you, he's got me, right where he wants us to be. And the real question is, if we want to faithfully follow Jesus, then we have to hear him say, pull your own little red wagon Focus on your unique calling, and you, you, follow me. Well, as I said at the beginning, Peter's encounter with Jesus is unique. It'll be different from ours, and yet it is representative because God helps all of us retrace our steps, and he leads us to a place of repentance where we can finally see ourselves and see Jesus for who he really is, so that we might turn from our self and from our past and from all of our mistakes and failures and we might turn towards Jesus and the future by putting renewed commitment and trust in him. And in that place of restoration, God gives each of us unique gifts and a role to play within his kingdom. Not all of our jobs are alike, but all of our jobs are important. And the critical thing to do is not to compare ourselves or to worry that we've been miscast in our roles, but rather to get on with the work itself. And if we all do that, if we all add the little bit that we have been called to do, well, then the end result may be far greater than the sum of the parts. Peter encountered Jesus, and it changed his life forever. And I would suggest that the same exact thing can happen to you and to me if we're open to it. So I'd like to close by telling you the story of a man named Beckett Cook, and you can read about this in his memoir entitled A Change of Affection. Beckett Cook was a young, successful production designer living the high life in Hollywood, and a couple years ago on a Saturday afternoon, he went to a coffee shop in a trendy neighborhood in Los Angeles, and he noticed a 30-something-year-old man walk by with a to-go cup of coffee in one hand and then a 
hardcover copy of a book and the other. And on the spine, he could see that the title of that book was Roman's Commentary. That was surprising. And then he noticed that as he walked by, this man greeted a group of 20-somethings that were all seated together, and every one of them had a Bible either in their hand or on the table in front of them. And Becca Cook was shocked by this. People were carrying Bibles in public in Los Angeles. He'd lived in L.A. for 15 years. He had never seen this in his life. And so after the 30-year-old guy walked away, he leaned over to one of the people seated at the table next to him, and, and he said, what do you all actually believe? And so they engaged in a conversation with one another. And he explains that he didn't feel threatened or angry or alienated, but he was surprised and somewhat confused by some of their answers. And yet at the same time, he said he felt a strange kind of respect because their honesty and their boldness was refreshing, especially in Los Angeles. And so after their conversation, when the group was leaving, one of them from that table invited him to come to church with them the following week. And to his own surprise, he said yes. So I'd like to read you a slightly longer excerpt than I usually do, but I think it's worth it. I think you'll like it. This is what happened one week later. Becca Cook writes, I thought, what's the harm in at least checking this church out? I decided to embrace it as something of an anthropological study, a chance to confirm all my suspicions about the ridiculousness of Christianity. I, of course, didn't want any of my progressive, liberal, sophisticated friends knowing that I was considering such an act of blasphemy. In my circle of friends, Christianity was not only considered a joke, it was considered downright dangerous. After I parked my car, I walked up a flight of stairs and across a courtyard, and as I entered the entrance, a woman greeted me. She said, hello, we love you. Uh-oh, I thought, maybe this is another Hollywood cult. I don't think that's how people greet one another here at Central, but I'll have to check with the ushers. <laughs> the service was just beginning, and I immediately cringed when I heard Christian music being played. But after a few, a few songs, I, I, I didn't mind the music so much. After a few announcements, the pastor came up. That's the guy with the Romans commentary book from the coffee place. I sat listening intently as the pastor began his sermon from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. I, along with the rest of the congregation, was captivated. As he preached, every sentence that came out of his mouth resonated as truthful to me. It was strange, and I had no idea why. At one point, I remember thinking, this is the gospel? What he was saying was turning everything I thought I knew about religion on its head. I was stunned by the utter simplicity of it. He opened the sermon by saying, most people think Christianity or the Christian life means being a good person and not sinning. Yep, that's what I'd always thought. As he continued, I began to realize that I had never really understood the true gospel. After the sermon... The pastor invited anyone who wanted prayer for anything to come up to the front where people were waiting to pray for them. I considered going over and asking for prayer, but doing so would mean admitting to myself that this could all be real. And I wasn't sure I was ready for the impact such admission would have on my life. But as the music continued, I kept feeling the pull to ask for prayer. I would take one step forward, but then immediately step back. And finally, I just thought, you know what? I'm here. Might as well do this. So I walked down the aisle, and I went to the nearest person I could find on the prayer team. And I love how he puts this. He said, hi, I'm not a Christian, and I don't know what I believe, but here I am. 
He responded immediately, okay, let me pray for you. I don't remember exactly what he prayed, but I remember thinking, why does this stranger care about me so much? After he finished, I thanked him and made my way back to my seat. Reeling from all the stimuli and feeling unsteady on my feet, I sat down to let my mind process it all, the sermon, the prayer, the music. All of a sudden, a giant wave of God's presence came crashing over me. I had no prior experience with this, no framework for it, no way of anticipating it, but it was the most penetrating moment I had ever experienced. I don't know how to describe it other than to say that God revealed himself to me. In that moment, everything became clear. God was real. Jesus was real. The Bible was real. The resurrection was real. It was all real. It was as if a curtain had parted and I could finally see the truth. The meaning of my life became absolutely clear. I finally knew where I came from, what I was doing here, and where I was going. God revealed his holiness to me, and I saw the utter depth of my sin in light of his holiness. I felt this mix of deep sorrow and incredible joy, sorrow over my sin and joy over meeting Jesus Christ, and gratefulness for everything that meant. When the service ended, I collected myself and made my way out to my car. I was in a daze. I don't really remember driving home. What just happened? Well, what just happened was he met Jesus, and Jesus changed his life. Now, that is just one person's story. If we had more time, I could share countless others. And his story happened all of a sudden in a very unexpected way, but that's not always how it happens. For others, it's a slow, dawning realization that Jesus is real and that he can be known. But either experience is genuine. And the point is that if Jesus has been raised, then he is alive now and we can meet him. We can know him. And this table is one of the places where he has promised to meet with us. So if you are already a Christian, but you are someone who has let Jesus down, you have denied him in some way, through your words, through your actions, through your silence, or perhaps through some secret sin. If you have failed him, or if you've drifted away, now is your chance to come back and meet him once more. You can recommit yourself to him at this table. But if you're not yet a Christian, what does all this mean for us now? We can meet him. We can meet Jesus. We meet him when we hear the good news, the gospel. We meet him when we read the scriptures for ourselves, on our own, as well as together with others. We pray to him. We become part of the community of his people. We process our doubts. We count the cost. And then we turn from the past, from our sins, our mistakes, and our failures, from ourself, and we turn towards him, towards the future that he has opened up for us. And when we do, we enter into a whole new world. If Jesus has been raised, then he is still alive. And you can meet him. You can meet him now. So don't wait. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for that encounter with Peter on the beach alongside the, the Sea of Galilee. We thank you for his example of repentance, retracing his steps, going back to the place where he had 
veered off course so that he might experience your forgiveness and grace and be restored. And we pray the same for us, that here in this sanctuary, at this place, you might meet us so that we might know you. We thank you, Father, that Jesus is alive and we can meet him now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.